Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Our house. One winter, in freezing conditions with nowhere to go, we brought into a cricket pavilion to find a place to put his head down and was found the next day dead from hypothermia. I can't cope with life. I'm now living with extreme guilt. If only we acted differently. If my husband had not taken that action, he would probably be alive today. And I'm at this point filling up with tears, stunned by her revelations, and I just don't know how to respond. In fact, I just listened. A year later, I received a letter, thanks for the grace that the church extended to me is just what I needed at that time in my life. I'm still in a difficult situation, but I know that God is with me. I know I went home that night from the interaction and suddenly my challenges as a father pale into insignificance through a testimony of brokenness. A believer who become perplexed by circumstances full of grief, out of sorts, in relationship domestically and her life with God. And yet I also found the Holy Spirit at the same time ministering to me in my personal circumstances. This is indeed, it's an extreme example. This is an extreme psalm. But what happens, probably not to the extent of that, when life falls through the cracks? When our dreams shatter and circumstances take a turn for the worse, or we are regarded with suspicion and are deemed an outcast, or when we sin with the guilt and shame attached. In these circumstances, does God only love us in our goodness? Does only God come up trumps in the good times? Or is he there for us in our poverty and brokenness as well? Well, welcome to Psalm 73. Because that is what it's about. It's a psalm of Asaph, who is a Levite. He's a priest, a musician, with a special responsibility for music in Israel. With pastoral responsibilities, and he also had the gifting, 2 Chronicles tells us, as a seer. And we meet him in this psalm, and he's going through a threefold crisis with himself, with the society around him, and most importantly, with God. And as we follow this, this psalm, it should help us in three areas. Helps us with our honesty. Our honesty with God. As we follow the psalmist process from radical doubt in God to purpose to a robust, purposeful affirmation of faith. Secondly, it gives us an instruction of how to manage ourselves in difficult situations. John Stott said. Self is our last and constant enemy. If we're sensitive about self, we protect ourselves, we need to be on our guard from self. Being governed by feelings. The heart is a deceitful of all things. And thirdly, if we're out of sorts with God, this psalm tells us how to find our way back. How do we stop resentment, 
envy? Or how do we stop the trinkets and the trophies of this transient world taking the place of God in our hearts? How do we stop drift away from the Lord? The, the psalm I'm going to look at is the, the end bit. That's the more positive bit. We'll just very briefly look at Psalm 22, uh, verse 2 to 14 to set the context. Because that's the problem that set out. But we'll major on 15 to 28. So stay with me just a little, a little while. And then we'll learn what we, we can learn from the recovery and transformation of Asaph. Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, says Psalm 73 it stands at the theological centre of, of the Psalms. It has contained within it all the theological conundrums, complex, perplexing problems found throughout the Psalms, such as why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? And Brueggemann explains it is the most remarkable and satisfying of all the Psalms, as there's a struggle against God, a mighty engagement with God, and then a wondrous communion with God. In fact, this parable, sorry, psalm, it parallels the parable of the prodigal son in the New Testament. But when we just, just to look briefly at the first part, notice it's bookended by two very positive statements. He starts with verse 1, and it's an emphatic statement, and then verses 23 to 28, which are also emphatic, as I read it, was a number of amens that came from the congregation. Verse 1, emphatic, Asaph said, I'm going to tell you this gut-wrenching story about myself, but one thing, one thing I want you to know from the outset, left ringing in your ears, is this opening phrase, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Before he plunges into despair, he wants us to know the true reality. The conclusion at the beginning that he's come to. God in his goodness and faithfulness always trumps circumstances for those that follow him wholeheartedly. But briefly, his story set out in verse 2 to 14. And it's like a continual visit to the dentist. <laughs> where his personal circumstances become bewildering to him. He may have encountered severe illness. He doesn't say Certainly 26 indicates his health is not in good shape. Verse 2 uses this image of his foot slipping. You remember Colin talked about this a little bit in Psalm 2, that, that actually in the Bible, uh, walking is used as a metaphor to signify a person's relationship with God. And his walking with God then comes a situation of disorientation that took him by surprise, expressed through the, the phrase... I nearly lost my foothold. And in 13, verse 13 to 14, further is disillusioned as he seeks to follow God's ways religiously, but without seeing any positive results. He says, in vain I kept my heart pure. I've washed my hands in innocence, but all day long I've been plagued and I've been punished every morning. He's saying, basically, my situation is making no sense whatsoever. I'm suffering, and he finds himself in despondency and mental confusion. But to make matters worse, verse 13, as he makes constant effort to live an ethically good life, he finds that the Gentiles, 
verses 4 to 12, so nations who were surrounding him, the Jews were surrounded by the Gentiles, those who did not know God seemed to be having a whale of a time. In their self-indulgence, their scheming, their boasting, and God-forsaken lives. You see, such people have health, wealth, comfort, based on, would you believe it, a life of violence and oppression. And they have no shame in self-interest. <clears throat> Sorry, they have no shame and just self-interest. Walter Brueggemann again describes verse 4 to 12. It's like people are happy to take a trip to the beach. Come back sometime, as you do in Cornwall, when it's not raining. <laughs> Untroubled, no hang-ups, who don't care about the less fortunate, are well-fed, our bodies well cared for, don't look at me, we're into self-preservation, self-love, self-indulgence, those who live lives for themselves. They're carefree. Straight out of present day, the sun, daily mirror, hello, and cosmopolitan magazine, or reality TV show. And all this evoke, evokes resentment and envy. He looks out and he says, not only am I suffering, but look at the dogs. Look at the Gentiles. They have it all. It's just not there. What's the difference in being one of God's chosen ones? That's in summary the predicament he's in. A problem with himself, the prosperity of the ungodly, and with God. Where is God in all this? And then, and this is what I just, just made wrong for the last part, he's going about his pastoral duties as a priest. Probably he's instructing a small group in his community. And he's about to open his mouth, and he's about to convey something negative about his personal situation. And he stops himself. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. He has this Eureka moment. He ponders the effect of loading his negativity on the faith of those he's responsible for. He does the godly, mature, wise thing, and he holds his tongue. And I've been rather struck when I was reading this psalm, how the beginning of radical change starts with a moment of simple sobriety, in a very practical way, of considering others before self. A way out of self-interest and not understanding our situation is to focus on others. It's just a thought planted as a seed, I believe, by God. But it becomes pivotal to transformation. Do you know, it's that hidden thing, that seemingly small act of compassion, that unseen action, doing the right thing that only God sees, the Christ-like thing. Though it be just a cup of water, just a small step, but who knows where it will lead. God, Philippians said, is at work in us. He's at work in our ordinary day, everyday experiences, even in our brokenness. This psalm proves that. And we learn, and we should learn more, to learn to hear how God whispers to us, even in our brokenness, and act accordingly. 
But now, when he does this, when he stops himself, he's starting to move in the right direction. But he's still confused. Okay? So it's this eureka moment, but he's still not understanding. It says, until he enters the house of God, which would have been the tabernacle at that time. And it's here that he has an epiphany. It's here that he has an encounter with God. But notice this, for him, it's his, or in, this happens in his ordinary, daily working place that he encounters God. He gains wisdom and understanding in three areas. The plight of the wicked, the true state of his heart and mind, and God's attitude towards him. Firstly, the plight of the ungodly. He had glanced with envy and resentment, but begins to understand the eternal consequences of the ungodly actions he had perversely come to admire. Indeed, the godless, verses 18 to 19, they are the ones on slippery ground. It's not me. It's not the believer. They are the ones in ruin. They are the ones who are quickly destroyed and swept away. And he compares their situation to experiencing, verse 20, a bad dream. Their progress is pure illusion. It's fantasy because of their final end is destruction. And secondly, verses 21 to 22, he sees his mindset, his heart, for what it is. It had been corroded by wrong thinking and a callous heart. How his understanding is transformed in the light of God's presence. Wrong attitudes are seen for what they are. God's such light, if you like, shows his heart had become hard. He had become senseless. He had become ignorant. He had admits he had acted with animal instincts before God. We need to, at all times, follow the psalmist and say, search me, O God, and expose wrong thinking, change my heart of stone. Because more and more there's a real danger of adopting cultural traits, of easily becoming immune to preventing worldly ways invading the space that belongs to God and holy to God. And absorbing ways of, world, of the world in our thinking and our actions. And we need to continually do that self-examination process to the Lord. That God's ways alone, that his word, become those that are impactful on our responses to life. Those, if you like, as we looked at a number of months ago, the Sermon on the Mount virtues of new creation. That kind of living that's contrary to the way of the world that will bring God's kingdom to bear. More and next, he looks with wonder and amazement at the grace of God towards him. Verse 23, can't get over it. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. You take me into glory. The, the psalmist is shocked. God had not abandoned him. God had not withdrawn. He had not rejected him. In fact, he has a revelation of the tenderness of God toward him. He is thoroughly right, accepted just as he is. I'm still with you. He couldn't get over it. He does not anticipate being on the receiving end of God's favour and generosity. He's not the dentist. <laughs> Here we see the amazing grace of God. 
We would do well to note that the whole of our redeemed lives are entirely due to the mercy and the grace of God. The psalmist's early perception of God's abandonment was just not right. He sees God had indeed been active in a very practical way. I remain standing. It's due to God. I later remain protected and rescued due to the Lord. Here's an important reflection. He's on the receiving end of God's pursuit of him. We need to get hold of this for herself. He would score no points if his attitude counted. Rather, it's God's power that holds him and has restrained him from falling. There, Gentiles end his ruin, but glory and honour will result for the psalmist. Do we honestly believe God likes us? Not just because theologically God has come to love us. More than that, he actually likes us. Scriptures like Isaiah 49, 15 reflect God's ways. Can a woman forget an nursing child and have no compassion or tenderness on the son she has born? Even though she may forget, I will not forget you. And we can often feel rubbish. We've done something we should have not. We've said something we should have not. And we tend to put God on the level of our fractured human relationships. And we think we need to earn our way back to favour. Be reminded this morning, God is not like that at all. Grace is not earned. It's a gift of God. We are those who are God's privileged children. We've been brought by the Son into the family into the very presence of God, and are those who are able to cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. We are accepted in the Beloved unconditionally. Nothing is on. Yes, repentance flows here, as we have seen. We can see that in the psalm. But know this first and foremost, God is relentlessly tender and compassionate to us, just as we are with our sins and faults. He doesn't sanction these, but he does not withhold his love. He never withholds his love because of how we feel about ourselves. We do not have to earn our way back. This is a difficult thing, I felt, that you fellow believers, that we can be wracked with guilt and shame. I want to say this morning, God does not have a scorecard. He does not deal with us as our sins deserve, like others do. We are in the beloved. We are affirmed, we are assured, we're accepted. And we need to learn, like the apostle 23-year-old John in the upper room, to lay our head on the breast of Jesus and to find him in such an intimate way. Holy Spirit, just help us this morning to, to take that grace from being a, a purely theological construct so that we apply it to our everyday experience. And he goes on and he sees that it's the Lord who guides him. Says elsewhere in the Psalms, by still waters. He restores us. 
His glory is seen in us. We bear his image. And one day our hope, with, along with the psalmist, will be consummated in what is to come. And then finally, verses 25 to 26, we have this stunning, absolutely stunning ex exclamation from the psalmist as worship and praise pour forth as a result as he's in the presence of God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and portion forever. Asaph, he exclaims, I do not want for anything anymore. God is all I want. Can we use, with the aid of the Holy Spirit even, the language of this man? Have we ever arrived at such knowledge and experience of God? Our goal must be to know Christ in such a way. To see through everything in life, all that the world has to offer. And say, it is as Paul the Apostle said, it's all rubbish. It's all street filth. Fit only to be thrown out compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. Amazing joy explodes in this man's life. He has God himself, not things, and that is all sufficient. His greatest blessing is God. It is the one, one singular thing of his life. In the presence of God, everything else fades into insignificance, and knowing God becomes everything to this man. What has happened? He's had a re renovation in the core of his being. He has met with God. Verse 26, he says, I may be done for. I may be finished. I may be as good as dead. My heart and flesh fail. Practical circumstances have not changed. His physical condition is not in good shape. But God, but God is the strength or rock of my heart. In other words, for Asaph, his limitations are confronted by God's limitlessness. Even body feelings will not stand in the way of the eternal nature of our relationship with the Lord. That wonderful <laughs> chapter 8, Romans 8. You know, God before us, who what can be against us? Who what can separate us? Neither death or life, present future, nor any powers, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So he says this in verse 26, as for me, he has come to the point that my personal conviction is, my portion, my supply, my satisfaction is God. And the relevance here, you can take that and, and see that and delve into it, being a Levite, and, and what that means. That was their inheritance anyway. But what about us in our generation of Christians? I think we need to rediscover this kind of passion for God alone. I really do. One thing it is to know about God as an idea, but it's quite another to have a hunger and thirst for Him and His presence. And you translate this into New Testament language, Philippians 3.10. Paul says, my greatest desire is to know Christ. Mm -hmm. Not to plant churches. Mm -hmm. Not to be well known. 
My greatest desire is to know Christ. It means knowledge not just about him. That's important. I've given a lot of my life to that. But an intimate relationship with him. C.S. Lewis, 25 uh, to 26, comments, and this is on his sermon on rumours of glory, which I didn't... What a brain. I mean, I didn't understand it, but I understood this bit. He said, our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Richard Foster says, God aches over our distance and preoccupation. He mourns that we do not draw near to him. He grieves we have forgotten him. He weeps over our obsession with muchness and manyness. He longs for our presence. I wonder, I mean, I, I've been convicted by this in the song. You know, I ask myself, Johnny, are you defining yourself by personal possessions? By intellect, which is far worse than it used to be. So I'm going downhill really quickly, actually, in that <laughs> So I don't define myself by that anymore. <laughs> Reputation, or kudos, applause, or the love of everyone telling us how important we are. Or of those who are radically loved by God and finding Him sufficient. That's the biblical experience. Athas, he has arrived here. There's no other satisfaction outside God. All else seems valueless. You know, we, we looked at Hebrews, and there's a bit in Hebrews that you can miss, but it's Hebrews 10, where the writer is a pastor, and he's, he's saying to these people who were who are giving up, he said, what's happened to your first love? When you first came to Christ, he said, some of you were put in prison, others you had your property confiscated, you had your inheritance taken you off, but you looked at that and you said, so what? I found Christ. And you're being shamed publicly then. But you said, so what? That's a badge of honour. I'm following the Lord who despised the shame of the cross. I found a greater love. I found a better possession. Whom do I have in heaven but you? The earth and earth has nothing I desire but you. There is an electricity about God's presence now in Asis's life. He's overwhelmed by the extravagant love of God. Just one thing. He said, I'm going to, verse 28, I'm going to draw near. I'm going to draw near to God. I'm going to make it a habit of my life. This is not just going to be a one-off experience. Drawing near to God is what I'm going to do. I want to finish by Packer. Packer's a uh, an evangelical theologian died, I think, recently. Elder statement, statesman of our generation. And he uses the example of my namesake, John Owen. I'm famous in another century. Would you believe it? The greatest of the Puritans, John Owen. He said, the Puritans called drawing near to God, communion with God. He said, we need to learn from John Owen, he says, the Puritan differed from evangelicals, and I would put including charismatics, because to them and to Owen, communion with God was a great thing. To evangelicals today, it's a comparatively small thing. I can say this, the evidence, we say little about it. When Christians meet today, we talk about Christian work, interests, acquaintances, state of the churches, 
problems of theology, but rarely about our daily experience of God. Owen to his illness in 1674, a long time ago, writing to a friend, said, Christ is our best friend. I pray God with all my heart that I may be weary of everything else but converse and commune with him. God used illness and all the other pressures of Owen's life to drive him into communion with God and not away from him. In the midst of all his academic, political and ecclesiastical labours, he made many visits to God, not with petitions or asking for deliverance from hardships, but with the intention of seeing his glorious friend and to contemplate his greatness. Graham Kendrick wrote that wonderful song, Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. 